A Wisconsin father was forced to watch his teenage daughter, Grace, die over FaceTime. Now he's speaking out as a trial date has been set in the groundbreaking case. What happened to Grace inside an Appleton hospital and the questions her family hopes will be answered once and for all. Next. Scott Shera, Grace's father, is my guest. Scott, thank you so much for, for being here, and please accept our, our sympathy f- after all uh, that you've been through. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Liz, and I really appreciate your kindness. Thank you. And we certainly appreciate the fact that you've been, been speaking out of, about all of this. Uh, your daughter, Grace, died. It was October of, of 2021 during the pandemic. But I thought before we got into her her tragic final days. Just just tell us about Grace. You know, even from her pictures, you're able to see the incredible spirit, I think, that, that your daughter had. She was something. I mean, you can't, uh, you can't make up some of the stories that I could tell about Grace. Grace was 19 when, when she met the Lord on October 13th of 21. Grace had Down syndrome. You know, most people would think somebody with Down syndrome can't do much, but, you know, Grace was Grace was not just our life. She was the life of the party. Oh, there's so much to to say about her. I know she drove, she snowmobiled. Uh, There are many pictures of of that. You mentioned she played the violin. She was a dancer, certainly certainly an entertainer through and through. So so take us back then, the the fall of 2021, Scott. Some family members, it sounds like, came down with with COVID, uh, and Grace had low oxygen levels. uh, So you were concerned. Well, strangely, yeah, it, now people would think, well, you're so awake, Scott. Well, Grace's death woke me up. I mean, I didn't know anything beforehand. We knew some. And just to give you a perspective, Grace was never vaccinated with anything. So we knew about the vaccine agenda, but never thought that a hospital would not be safe. And the propaganda had gotten to us to the point where, you know, we thought COVID was real. Uh, we wanted to go to a wedding on October 1st. And so we thought, well, we better just test Grace. So my wife went into Walgreens, got a home test, and we tested her for COVID. She was positive. So we got her on the FLCCC protocol with ivermectin vitamins. And on October 6th, one of the things that we were doing as part of that protocol is monitoring her oxygen saturation. And on that morning, it dropped to 88%. Unfortunately, the protocol at the time said that that's an emergency and you should admit yourself to the hospital if your oxygen drops below 94%. So we did that. And, you know, I know with 100% certainty, Liz, that if we would not have taken Grace to the hospital, she'd be alive today. When I say that I'm 100% certain that Grace would be alive today if we wouldn't have taken her to the hospital, it's because of what they did. You know, and ultimately that's why we have filed the first of its kind lawsuit. But what they did to Grace was, the emergency room physicians said, well, let's just check Grace into the hospital for a few days, put her on oxygen and a steroid, and she'll be fine. I thought, well, that makes sense. It's a good preventative measure. measure. And I was with Grace then from the 6th of October until the 10th. I was taken out by an armed guard on the 10th. We had to hire an attorney to get my daughter in as a replacement advocate. Her name is Jessica. My wife couldn't do it because she had COVID or whatever at the time. And what we found out in looking at the records is that on October 9th, the day before I was kicked out of the hospital, they started Grace on a sedation med called Presidex. Presidex is not supposed to be used for more than 24 hours. Uh, And if you do use it for more than 24 hours, it causes acute respiratory failure. 
that's a fairly big deal because on Grace's death certificate, they list the first cause of death as acute respiratory failure with hypoxemia. So that's cause and effect. I mean, they killed her with Presidex. And bigger picture, it wasn't the Presidex that literally killed her. It was combining it with other meds, which I'll explain here in just a minute. But so people often. So just ask, to go well, back to that to that medication, uh, just just real quick, Scott. That mm-hmm. that medication specifically says no longer than twenty four hours, and you find it out. In fact, it's it's four days uh, that that she's receiving that medication. At that right when we turn the page to October thirteenth, Grace's last day on Earth, she had already been on Presidex for four full days. So the medical malpractice nurse who originally reviewed Grace's records, she called it chemically restraining her. So the chemically the chemical restraint they used, the Presidex, set up Grace's last day so they could kill her, literally. You know, and I'm calling it murder, as you know, Liz, and, you know, I'm, I'm not a dummy. I took the time to study the records, and it took me 500 hours of studying before I concluded that my daughter was murdered. And I'll connect the dots here in just in just a moment. Um, Presidex is, is used as an anesthesia for surgery. So the typical use of Presidex is for about three hours. Rarely do you use it for more than 24 hours. And so why would they do that? Well, they're setting up in a hospital setting, and it's still going on today. This has nothing to do with COVID, but COVID exposed this agenda. Their goal is to get a person on a ventilator. And so they have to be sedated to be on a ventilator. And now as we turn the page to Grace's last day, that day started with Cindy and I at home. I had already, you know, of course, I'm not not in the hospital anymore. The doctor called us and said <clears throat> his purpose of his call was to ask us for a pre-authorization for a ventilator just in case. And just in case, he framed it such that, you know, Grace didn't need a ventilator. But, you know, these, he said these type of things tend to happen in the middle of the night when we can't get a hold of the family which is a it's it's a simple flat out lie and the reason i know that is because a ventilator has a 90% kill rate with covid uh, a ventilator has a about a $300,000 payday to the hospital so it was a financial motivation this was the fifth attempt they made to convince us to be able to put a pre-authorization on Grace's chart so they could pull the trigger when they wanted to for a ventilator well we said no and you know i suspected that he thought we'd say no because of what I'm going to tell you next with plan B. I see you have a question, so go ahead. I was just going to ask Scott, uh, not only that, but but Grace, the, the day before or even the day of, sounds like she's she's doing well. Well, she was doing well. My daughter, in spite of being sedated for four days, she was she was doing exceptional. The night before she died, you know, she has a BiPAP mask on, um, which that's another tangent that shouldn't have happened. But regardless, she has the BiPAP mask on, and Jessica had her sit up in bed, and she made a FaceTime call to uh, Jessica's boys, Grace's two nephews, and she sat up and waved to them and said, hi, boys, as loud as she could through the BiPAP so they could make it out. So she was still herself. And, you know, after we said no to the ventilator the next morning, the doctor uh, switch gears immediately. And he said, well, Grace had such a good day yesterday. So he was even acknowledging it. He said, we should get her out of bed. Uh, let's work on nutrition. Well, unbeknownst to us at that time, now that we have the detailed records, we can put together this timeline. And we see that he had already ordered strapping Grace down to the bed before the call and made her defecate in the bed. While we were on the call with him, he 
he ordered the increase to Presidex to the maximum allowable dose. This was at 1048 in the morning on October 13th. We got off the phone with the doctor at 1055. At 1056, he put an illegal do not resuscitate order on Grace's chart. And so you can see, this is why I call it plan B. I mean, this was, had to be all set up. Why would you put a do not resuscitate order on her chart? It doesn't make any sense. But the Presidex, even at max dose, did not kill Grace. So then what happened next, and this is why I call it murder, is that they combined Presidex with lorazepam and morphine. And those drugs, if you look at the morphine package insert, it says to never combine those drugs because it can cause death. But if you do combine those drugs, you're supposed to keep the reversal drug bedside and monitor the patient. No doctor or nurse came in Grace's room after they gave her the morphine. They put that med combination in Grace's system in a 29-minute window, Liz. That's what you do to euthanize a hospice care patient in their last hour of life. And what got me to the murder claim is that a pharmacist stepped forward as a whistleblower, and when I asked her the detailed questions about Grace's med, she said, Scott, for that to happen, not only did the doctor have to order those meds, but the pharmacist had to sign off. And because those meds are contraindicated, they had to override the internal alarm. And then the fourth leg of that stool is the nurse who was in charge of Grace's care the last two days had 20 years of ICU experience. So when I saw that, I realized this, this was in about April of 2022, you know, six months after Grace died, I realized she was murdered. And that, of course, started a whole... Um, it became my life. I mean, I became a full-time researcher, advocate, and you know, started to connect the dots as to what's actually going on here. It's horrific to hear those those details. Uh, I knew, knew just just a few before talking to you to you, Scott. But Ascension uh, Saint Elizabeth Hospital, I wanted to mention, did not respond to our request for comment uh, on the case. But as you know, lawyers did file a 19-page response to that lawsuit last spring, denying each of your family's claims. But in a way, their response it seemed almost blamed Grace uh, and yourself, Scott, saying any and all injuries or damages sustained by plaintiffs may be a direct and proximate result of the negligence and or decisions made by plaintiffs and quote plaintiffs condition may have been the result of natural disease progression beyond the control of and unrelated to the acts omissions or con conduct of defendants and then also i also wanted to mention uh, response to state and federal complaints that your family filed those agencies find the complaints did not warrant any further investigation. What what do you make of those responses? What I believe they're specifically talking about is, number one, the ventilator. We would not approve a ventilator. And, you know, Grace was never a ventilator candidate. And I can tell you with certainty that if we would have approved a ventilator as a pre-authorization, Grace would not have died on October 13th. She would have died 22 days later, consistent with the maximum payout formula for a ventilator. Then the second thing is right in the records, they reference the fact that Grace was unvaccinated. The COVID expert on the COVID wing of St. Elizabeth's Hospital in his first day report, his final statement was that he said that if the patient would be fully vaccinated, she would not be here. So you can see they had a bias towards us being unvaccinated. But, you know, so that would be something they said, well, you know, Grace, if the parents would have just, you know, rolled over and followed the government 
um, lies, the patient would not be here. Yeah, probably because she would be dead before we'd ever take her to the hospital. You know, but the main mistake that we made was it has nothing to do with the hospital. And, you know, in that I'm taking full responsibility for, which is I let the spirit of fear control me. And God did not give us a spirit of fear. And, you know, I had to repent of that because it, it, it's the most important thing I could share with anybody because that's part of Satan's playbook. He's going to keep using it over and over and over, try to create fear. So then we don't have our right mind and we make foolish decisions. And, you know, that decision cost my, my daughter her life. And then what the, the second thing that you read, Liz, I'm sorry, I, I lost it. You mentioned about the hospital first, their response, but then, oh yes, the, the, um, the state agencies, right. So this is quite interesting. I'm putting together a collusion uh, press release. Uh, I'm going to finish it up this afternoon. We'll, we'll likely release it next week. The, the collusion involved is beyond what people would imagine. So it isn't just the state agencies. I'll come to that last. But the district attorney's office, you know, they say we don't have enough evidence to file a criminal complaint. The coroner's office, I just asked to have them look at the death certificate. They refuse to even meet. Okay, that's ridiculous. Well, then the Department of Safety and Professional Services, which is the agency you're talking about, this is really important. So what happened, Liz, is we filed a claim against the doctor on December 2nd of 2022. Why that date? It, well, because on November, I, I'm, I'm sorry, 2021, Grace died October 13th of 21. On November 8th, I sent a request to St. Elizabeth's Hospital requesting a meeting with the CEO and the doctor because we had already gone through the records. I went through them with the doctor. We had enough evidence to show that Grace was killed. And I thought, well, they would want to know so that they don't make the same mistake twice. On December 2nd, they sent an email back. This is of 2021 now, six weeks after Grace died. They said, we're not going to meet with you. So that motivated me to file a complaint with the Department of Safety and Professional Services, which is the state licensing board for doctors and nurses in Wisconsin. On January 20th, they sent me a letter that said they did an investigation and they found the doctor did no wrong. Well, we found out that that was a complete lie. We found out after digging in that, in fact, uh, they received a seven-page letter from the doctor's attorney with about 50 lies in it. And the state agency accepted that as evidence. They never even contacted me. Well, now ratchet it up another level. A pharmacist filed a formal complaint, a 100-page complaint against the same doctor in July. And she got the exact same form letter that I got back that said they did an investigation and the doctor did no wrong. And we found out the same pattern. They, when we did the, the FOIA request, we found out that in fact, what happened was, is the, the doctor's attorney responded again and the state agency bought that response. Well, what, so what's going on? This is why I say it's collusion. You've got the DA's office, the coroner's office, the regulatory agency that's supposed, these are all agencies that are supposed to protect the public. Okay, well, you know, and they all know we have this lawsuit. Why aren't they, why aren't they trying to help protect other people from being murdered? And, and you know, I've concluded, of course, that everybody is in on this and it, it is not a joke. And that's why we're doing the, the work now to 
formulate a press release next week on this exact topic. And this is a case I know so many people are watching, not just in your Wisconsin community, but I think across the country. I know you invested uh, quite a bit in billboards featuring Grace's story. There's uh, a, a great website with, I think, some very eye-opening revelations uh, on that website. Why have you, though, chosen to be so vocal uh, over all of this, Scott? And what kind of backlash uh, have you faced f- for doing so? God showed me that Grace's story, while it's evil, he wants it to be used for his light. Uh, it's amazing to see how God works. I mean, I I clearly see he has prevented us from any attacks whatsoever. I don't have a guard. I don't have, you know, I'm, I just sense that he is um, behind us and, um, well, he's really in front of us, but yeah, I, I, uh, I don't fear that whatsoever. And if I end up getting taken out over this, Liz, uh, the story will become even bigger. So that's okay. I know at least two weeks have been set aside for the, the trial uh, in November of, of 2024. Uh, talk about that. What are you hoping for as far as an outcome here, Scott? Yeah, so the judge did the unthinkable. So we have the first day of the jury trial. It's a three-week jury trial. The first day is November 4th of 24. That's the day before the presidential election. You know, I even look at that timing as God's timing, not just the fact that the judge set the jury trial. We've already had four motions to dismiss, and the judge denied all of them. So the entire case is going to trial, including the first medical battery claim in over 60 years. So this is a big deal. And tell us the name of the, the website to, to go to, to follow the story and, and to get more information, Scott. So the main website is OurAmazingGrace.net. And that website has Grace's story. It has a whole bunch of pictures and videos of Grace. And it has a number of resources. It has my medical murder series. I did a seven-part series, Liz, called Medical Murders, the Number One Cause of Death in the United States by Design. That seven-part series is posted there. And then we put together a very specific uh, landing page website, graceshara.com, S-C-H-A-R-A. And the purpose of that site is to uh, have people sign up with their email. And that way we can, as calls to action happen, as we're getting ready for trial, we have the ability to reach a database of people who are following the story. Well, we certainly wish uh, your family the best moving forward. Scott Shera, thank you so much for all the time you, you spent with me. And again, thank you for being a voice in all of this. Well, anytime, Liz. Thank you very much for having me. That will do it for this episode of Liz Collin Reports. We'll see you next time.